Hello, and welcome to the History of Philosophy in India by Janardan Ganeri and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at www.historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, Change of Mind, Vasubandhu and Yogacara Buddhism. One of the many inspired details in George Orwell's novel 1984 is its sinister repurposing of the phrase Big Brother. The totalitarian rulers of that dystopian society are playing on the fact that Big Brothers are objects of both love and admiration. If you have a Big Brother yourself, you know what I mean. Even if you fought with him occasionally, you probably also looked up to your older brother, hoping to benefit from his protection, as well as his greater experience and know-how. Perhaps this explains something about the intellectual career of Vasubandhu, a Buddhist thinker who lived around 400 AD. According to legend, he was converted to the Mahayana branch of Buddhism through the good offices of his own older half-brother, Asanga. Prior to that, Vasubandhu had been a controversialist within the Abhidharma branch of Buddhism, attacking rival Abhidharmakas for their views on past and future reality. Once brought around to the Mahayana way of seeing things, Vasubandhu joined Asanga as a co-founder of one branch within Mahayana, which is known as Yogacara. It is often seen as offering a kind of idealist version of Buddhism, rejecting even the minimal concessions made to extra-mental reality by the Avidharma Buddhists. Thus, the career of this one man, Vasubandhu, ties together numerous strands of the ancient Buddhist tradition. The welter of schools and subschools can be confusing, especially since some of them have more than one name. Yogacara is also known as the Jnanavada, or the teaching of consciousness, for reasons that will become clear later in this episode. We did explain the various branches in episode 43, but it might be helpful to go over them again now to set the stage for the emergence of Yogacara. And it might be even more helpful if we concentrate on one central philosophical question that was debated between the schools. How do we account for the apparent continuity of things in the world, whether these are inanimate objects, animate beings, or our own selves? Everyday common sense would give a straightforward answer. These things seem to be continuously real because they are real. Suppose I see my big brother, the art historian, reading an art history book. The book in my brother's hand, my brother, and I myself are all substances that persist through time. We can also interact with one another, like when I look over my brother's shoulder to see what he's reading, and he asks whether I don't have a philosophy book with me that I should be working through. Such causal interactions can also take place across time, as when I remember the next day what he was reading, and wish the books I get to read had so many nice pictures in them. The Buddhists, of course, reject this commonsensical view. Belief in the enduring self is indelibly linked to suffering, so we must give it up if we are to achieve liberation. More generally, according to an Abhidharma teaching, continuous substances have only apparent reality. What is really real are atomic qualities that exist only momentarily, the so-called dharmas. When we seem to see a book or a brother stably existing from one moment to another, we are putting together fleeting elements into a whole, and this whole has only conventional reality, like the famous chariot that is no more than the sum of its parts. Yet, we still need to explain the causal relations between apparent things. This is especially problematic in the case of causation across time. When my only conventionally real brother, 
tosses his conventionally real book onto the conventionally real table, and it makes a loud noise, because conventionally real art history books tend to be impressively large, how do the elemental features that I register as his body and its throwing motion produce the noise one second later? In his early career, Vasubandhu is out to refute a group of Buddhists who gave a surprising answer to that question. To ensure maximum confusion, this school also goes by two names. We'll refer to it as Sarvastivada, but they are also known as Vipassika. Like other Abhidharmikas, the Sarvastivadins deny the persistent reality of objects, which are nothing but fictitious combinations of momentary dharmas. However, for them, all the dharmas are indeed real, whether they are past, present, or future. This ensures that causation across time is possible. If it were non-existent and unreal, a dharma that is now past could not give rise to a present dharma. And here is where we come to the early phase of Vasubandhu's career. He studied Sarvastivada and wrote a treatise explaining its doctrines in a set of verses. But then, he subjected these same teachings to a thorough critique, in the form of a commentary on these very verses. Vasubandhu calls his own version of the Abhidharma theory Sautrantika, meaning that it follows the Buddhist sutras. Like modern-day philosophers who give themselves the more self-explanatory title of presentists, Vasubandhu wants to insist that only present things are real. That may seem a refreshing concession to common sense in the midst of this intra-Buddhist debate, but Vasubandhu is not merely relying on common sense, he has arguments on his side. From his point of view, the Sarvastivada theory sounds ironically like a form of eternalism. After all, for them, past, present, and future things are all permanently real, hardly a suitable doctrine for Buddhists. Besides, if all these things are real, then why are only some of them present to us and currently active? Unless we can explain this, we can't account for the fact that you can only read a book about the history of philosophy that is presently in your hands, and not a book that still lies in the future, or has itself been lost to history. The Sarvastivadin may repeat that past things do have an effect presently. There are memories of previous events, and the conventionally real book, tossed aside a second ago, makes a sound only now when it lands on the apparent table. But Vasubandhu is able to explain how past things can continue having their effects even once they stop existing, which, since they are all instantaneous, they always do immediately. There is a causal continuum from one dharma to the next, so that the motion of throwing the book causes further motion of the book through the air, the chain culminating with a bang when the book lands. Or, to take a case that interests him more, past actions may cause present karmic fruits indirectly, through an unbroken chain of momentary dharmas. Vasubandhu compares this to the way that a seed that no longer exists has given rise to a sprout, then a mature plant, and finally the flower we see presently. Of course, the same analysis applies to the apparent self that initiated the previous action and now reaps its karmic reward or punishment. There is no real enduring self, of course, but the elements we falsely take to constitute the self are part of a chain of causal influence passing from one second to the next, like a flame being passed from one candle to another. According to the traditional story, Vasubandhu wrote this defense of Sautrantika Abhidharma Buddhism, attacking Sarvastivada Abhidharma Buddhism, before he came over to Mahayana Buddhism under the influence of his brother Asanga. If you're still having trouble keeping up, don't worry, all these people and schools were merely conventional realities anyway.
Once convinced by Asanga to convert, Vasubandhu wrote a series of powerfully argumentative works attacking the Abhidharma approach as a whole. Now, this is not our first contact with Mahayana. That branch of Buddhist thought includes the Madhyamaka philosophy so ably, if perplexingly, represented by Nagarjuna. And in fact, Asanga and Vasubandhu may have seen themselves as defending something like Nagarjuna's position, to the extent that he had a position. The brothers' approach is prefigured in a text called the Sutra of Profound Secrets, which offers what it calls a third turning of the wheel of Buddhist doctrine. And it claims to bring together the teachings of the first two wheels, namely Abhidharma and Mahayana. On the other hand, this latest version of Vasubandhu shares with Nagarjuna a frankly critical approach to the Dharma theory of Abhidharma. He does to these Dharmas what Abhidharma had done to everyday objects. Just as they rejected books and brothers as figments of the mind, now Vasubandhu suggests that even the momentary elemental dharmas are mental constructions. This may seem a radical shift from his earlier Sautrantika doctrine, but it actually retains something of that doctrine. Before, Vasubandhu was insisting that past and future things are unreal, only the present phenomena of the world outside us and of mental life exist. Now he realizes that he can do without the external phenomena, but he retains the internal or mental phenomena. Things outside us are merely apparent, comparable to the hair-like images seen by someone who has an eye disease. Since everything is a construction of the mind, mental reality is the only reality there is. How does Vasubandhu justify this breathtaking move? We might see him as applying a principle of philosophical economy, one that had been used already by other Buddhists. If we can explain our experiences without recognizing something as real, then we should eliminate it from our metaphysics. The Abhidharmakas had already eliminated chariots, books, and brothers. The earlier Vasubandhu had shown that we can do without past and future reality. Now the later Vasubandhu contends that we don't need present external reality either, so he feels able to argue for his own position mostly by responding to possible objections which try to force him to accept that something is externally existent. His hypothetical opponent complains that if external things are unreal, they could have no effect on us. To this, Vasubandhu rejoins that people are affected by unreal things in dreams and hallucinations, or in images they see in the afterlife when in hell. The point of this is not that life is but a dream. Dreaming is in fact a distinctive mental state, as is being in a faint. So Vasubandhu does not need to appeal to the idea that we cannot tell whether or not we are awake. Rather, his point is to show that our mental experiences can arise without any real external stimulus. His approach is not skeptical, but reductionist. He wants to show that mental events are caused, and in fact can only be caused, by other mental events. An external dharma could never be the thing I am perceiving right now, because the dharma is only momentary, and would have to cease existing by the time I have registered my awareness of it. Instead, there is a stream of mental experience, which Vasubandhu calls citta, manas, or vijnana, words referring to the mind or consciousness, and which for him are basically equivalent. Hence, the alternative name for Yogacara mentioned earlier, his vada, or teaching, is the vijnana vada, the teaching of consciousness, or the doctrine of mind or consciousness only, chitra matra. Vasubandhu still holds on to his earlier idea of a chain of causality, though now the chain consists only of mental events. 
everything about our current mental life is the result of previous mental events. A past event may take time to make itself felt in current awareness. Using another botanical metaphor, and a rather beautiful one, he compares this to the way that dye may be pulled in through the stem of a growing flower, and eventually color the petals as they unfold. At a more technical level, he invokes the so-called storehouse consciousness, something that had already been proposed in the Sutra of Profound Secrets. The idea here is that mental events are like currents coming to the surface of a stream, or, again, a gardening metaphor, like seeds planted earlier that are finally coming to fruit. These metaphors represent the way we can direct our attention to impressions received in past moments of awareness. Consider a childhood memory, like the time your big brother defended you from a bully on the school playground. Though this heroic act has not been continuously remembered over the years since it first occurred, the memory of it remains in storage and available as possible content for consciousness. Vasubandhu is sensitive to the fact that this idea of a storehouse consciousness is not found in Buddhist scriptures, but he shrugs this off. Plenty of what was written about the Buddha has been lost, and perhaps some of what has gone missing included a reference to this doctrine. Any doubts about Vasubandhu's Buddhist motivation should in any case be dispelled by his frequent references to liberation from suffering. The reductionist metaphysics of Buddhism had always aimed at the elimination of suffering. Suffering comes from attachment, and if we can dispel belief in the reality of things, we should be able to wean ourselves off of attachment to them. Though, that change in perspective will also require extensive spiritual training, and not just the ability to follow Buddhist arguments to their conclusion. These features of Buddhism are alive and well in Yogacara, whose name in fact comes from its emphasis on spiritual practices, or yoga, of meditation and mindfulness. Vasubandhu puts a name to the attitude that gives rise to attachment, duality. We suffer because we contrast ourselves as subjects to the objects of perception and desire. In reality, this contrast is an illusion. Common sense is wrong to suppose that there is a world of persisting objects outside us, and Abhidharma Buddhism does not go far enough in dispelling this mistake, since it still accepts that there are external objects of awareness, namely the dharmas. Yogacara takes a further step, or rather, two further steps. First, for Vasubandhu, the objects of the mind are internal to the mind. They are themselves part of mental life. Then comes the still more challenging step of giving up on even a mental version of the contrast between subject and object. The correct, non-dual attitude is one in which the mind no longer treats anything as an object of its awareness. It's such a fundamental undermining of everything we take ourselves to know about reality that Vasubandhu calls his teaching of non-duality a revolution at the basis. Thus, the revolution of this third wheel of Buddhist teaching has, appropriately enough, three stages. Vasubandhu explains them as follows. What is it that appears? A construction of the non-existent. How is it that it appears? Through dualities. What is its non-existence? A state of non-duality. He refers here to his teaching of the three kinds of independent nature, or svabhava. The first kind of independent nature is entirely fictive. It is fabricated or constructed by the mind. These would be the natures of the apparent things in our external environment. 
Vasubandhu compares them to an elephant conjured out of wooden props by a magician's sleight of hand. The second type of nature is called interdependent, the subject and object of awareness that depend upon one another, for example, an act of sight and that which is seen. Third and finally, there is awareness that has given up duality and become perfected or fulfilled. Even the mind is not an object for itself. At this stage, one is finally liberated from suffering by being liberated from illusion. It's significant that Vasubandhu's three stages are set out using the familiar word svabhava, which we just translated as independent nature. We saw this word in Nagarjuna, who targeted the very notion in his own critique. This brings us back to the question of where Yogacara sits in the history of Buddhism. It is grouped together with Nagarjuna's Middle Way, or Madhyamaka school, under the broader heading of Mahayana Buddhism, and Yogacara seems to have much in common with Madhyamaka. Yogacara, too, styles itself as a middle way, and for the same reason mentioned by Nagarjuna, it tries to steer between the extremes of nihilism and eternalism, or reification, of banning all things as non-existent, on the one hand, and taking all things to have stable and independent reality, on the other hand. Furthermore, both Mahayana traditions express their middle way as an acknowledgement of the emptiness of things. This was the upshot of Nagarjuna's skeptical attack on such notions as substance, motion, and perception. It is also the upshot of the Yogacara critique of subject-object duality in consciousness. As Asanga puts it, the non-existence of duality is indeed the existence of non-existence. This is the definition of emptiness. Nonetheless, the subsequent tradition would see disagreement and even harsh polemic developing between the two schools. A 6th century Madhyamaka thinker, Bhavevika, argues that Yogacara manages to fall into both extremes on either side of the correct middle way. Whereas Madhyamaka recognizes the legitimacy of conventional attitudes towards reality, Yogacara rejects conventional beliefs entirely, and this, according to Bhavevika, is a form of nihilism. On the other hand, Yogacara is also reificationist because it accepts the genuine reality of some phenomena, namely those that occur in the mind. Like a sharpened pencil or a soccer team that has just managed a hard-earned draw, Bhavevika has a good point. Vasubandhu certainly does aim to expose the fictionality of everyday objects, so that conventional reality would seem to be completely undermined in his Yogacara philosophy. And, even if the mental forms of Yogacara are empty, they do constitute a reality that is mental. Nagarjuna would presumably not hesitate to attack this mental version of reality as itself empty. Let's conclude with a few words on yet another name that has been given to Yogacara, in this case by modern scholars, idealism. Vasubandhu makes reality exclusively mental, constituted by nothing but presently occurrent mental events that are caused by earlier mental events. In this light, Yogacara certainly seems to merit the name of idealism. We might even take it to be one of the earliest forms of idealism to appear in the whole history of philosophy. But in a sense, calling Vasubandhu an idealist may underestimate his radicalism. Remember that the third, perfected nature in his system is not just one in which we realize that all the objects of our mental activity are themselves mental, it is one in which there is no duality between the mind and its objects at all. It is not easy, perhaps not even possible, to say what lies beyond mental activity that is structured dualistically. 
But whatever this reality might be, it does not seem to consist of ideas. If Vasubandhu is an idealist, then his idealism is only the last step but one on the path to enlightenment. Likewise, this episode is not the last step in our journey through Yogacara Buddhist philosophy. Next time, we'll be turning to another major figure of this school, Dignaga, who was active in the early 6th century. We'll see him continuing to wage the Yogacara revolution at the basis by offering a profound critique of the idea that we have knowledge of external objects. Remember, Big Brother is watching, or rather listening, and so should you, to the next episode of The History of Philosophy in India.